Hello, everybody. We're so glad you have joined us for our apologetics conference, Reasons to Believe 2023. And I have the joy and blessing of introducing our speaker, who is the, he is the Director of Cultural Engagement and Student Discipleship at the uh, Institute three, uh, Impact 360 Institute. He also has degrees, multiple degrees from Talbot Theological Seminary. Uh, he's just brilliant. We had an opportunity to hear him talk to us as, uh, as parents yesterday. If you missed that, hopefully we'll be getting that up soon, so pay attention. I'll be sending out an email. But I want you to just take a moment and really think about the things that he's going to tell you because our faith has rational truth behind it, and that should help us as we actually walk our own lives and when we offer this to other people in our lives. Would you please welcome Dr. Jonathan Morrow. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yep. All right. Well, it is good to be with you guys and excited. Yeah, we can throw in some power in there. That works better. Perfect. And then uh, we'll rock and roll. Well, it's good to see you guys and uh, excited to be back with you. Um, had the opportunity to be back with you a couple years ago and then uh, really looking forward to this time this morning. And the topic that we're going to talk about is making the case for God in a culture of unbelief. And so how do we think about that question? LifeWay Research recently did a survey on this and they track different beliefs and they found that just 36% of 18 to 34-year-olds would say they know that God exists. And that number is down from 63% when they would track that number in 1993 among that segment of Gen Z, teenagers, and millennials. And so one of the things that we're seeing in our culture is kind of an increased kind of, of skepticism towards God and the supernatural. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but it's really important that we are able to talk about why we believe what we believe, which is why, again, I love that your church takes the time to do that. Because we live in a post-Christian culture, and what that simply means is that the culture around us, while it's never been a Christian culture, it has been a Christianized culture, which means that there was echoes of things about truth and God and morality and, and all those kind of things that were there. But those echoes are becoming more faint, more distant right now. Um, and so how do we make the case for Christianity in an environment like that? And so the way that I love to do that is I'm just simply going to give you four words, and then we're going to focus on one of those words today. Because if, if, you, if you're going to make a case for Christianity in a culture that doesn't believe the Bible, because for them the Bible is not the answer, it's the question, and maybe that's where some of you are at. It's like, you know, I don't know if I'm honest, or I've got some questions about that. Here's the four words that I would encourage you to use to build out. First is truth. Does truth exist and can you know it? It's a fascinating conversation in its own right. Unfortunately, we can't have that conversation today. But then the second question you're going to have to answer is, does God exist? And is there a good independent reason to believe that that's the case? Like outside the Bible says so, how do I know that God is real? That's what we're going to do this morning. But if it turns out that God is real, how do we know which God? And that's when you come to the question of Jesus. This is our third word. Because it turns out this person named Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God 2,000 years ago, and you can investigate that claim in the historical fate of Jesus of Nazareth with eyes wide open. And if it turns out that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the risen Son of God, Son of Man, and the Messiah, 
then that means the authority that he has and how he viewed the Old Testament is also applied to how he viewed the New Testament. And you get the Word of God and the authority from God, from Jesus to that, as well as the historical reliability. So if you're going to build a case, truth, God, Jesus, Bible, I just covered that in about a minute, but you can spend weeks on it, years on it. It's very simple, and you can find ways to dig in deeper into the evidence on your own. So like when Greg talks next week on the Trinity, that'll, that'll be in the God box in terms of understanding who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be, which is awesome. All right? But I want to start with this quote by Richard Dawkins, and he's probably one of the most famous of the atheists of our day. And here's what he said. He says, look, <clears throat> I'm attacking God, all gods, anything and everything supernatural, wherever and whenever they have been invented. Now, I wish you wouldn't hold back. It's not healthy to keep all those emotions inside like that. You know, you got to let it out, man. Don't, don't him and haul around everything. And no, he's, no, he's very clear. He's like, this whole thing has been made up. It's been invented, and I'm, gonna, I'm, attacking, I'm attacking the rationality of that belief. And so what do we do in an environment like that? Um, because this question really matters. As, as Mortimer Adler put it, he says, look, more, cons- more, more consequences for thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. Meaning, if God exists, that gives you one set of answers for what life is like. And if God does not exist, that gives you a whole different set of answers for what God is like. But the one thing it cannot be is inconsequential. The one thing it cannot be is that it not matter. And so, because all of these five questions, these are worldview questions. Everyone has a worldview. And uh, your worldview is simply your view of the world. Your default answer, whether you've thought about it or not, every song, every movie, right? Whether you're talking about the Barbie movie or Oppenheimer or Mission Impossible or any movie that's out right now, they all answer questions around these topics. Origin, where do I come from? Is it random, blind, purposeless chance? Or have I been created with a purpose, right? The question of God impacts that. Identity, this is the question of your generation. Gen Z is wrestling with this broadly and culturally. What does it mean to be human and who gets to decide? Do humans have natures or do you just kind of create the whole thing, right? Meaning, like, does life have purpose beyond my own kind of pleasures and, and, and what I want? Or is there, is there something bigger to life? Morality, what's right, what's wrong, who gets to decide that question? And then lastly, destiny, what happens at the end of life. Is it game over? Is that all there is? Nothingness? Or is there an afterlife, a heaven, a hell? What, what's going on there? Like all of those questions, those fundamental worldview questions are impacted by the question of whether or not God exists, right? So as we explore this question, it's vital as followers of Jesus that we understand that we should expect that if God exists, that he's left himself um, evidence in creation for that. In fact, that's publicly accessible. Romans 1:19 and 20 says this, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what's been made so that they are without excuse. What does that mean? 
It means that there is evidence outside of the Bible, beyond just the Bible says so, for you to consider and for me to consider and for your friends and your family to consider about whether or not God is real or not. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five reasons, five signposts, if you will, that point in the direction of God. Now, as I love this topic, and it's tempting to kind of get in the weeds of all of them, but I'm going to do my best to kind of keep it at a high level to give you a broad overview of, of why you think and why it's reasonable to believe that God actually exists. And here's our first reason. Beginnings require beginners. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but up until the 20th century, most people throughout history, from Aristotle on down and everyone in between, believed that the universe was eternal. That matter and energy and all that stuff had just always existed. But all of that began to, ex- began to change when Albert Einstein in the early 1900s discovered the general theory of relativity, which is actually a theory of gravitation which predicted the expansion rate of the universe in his mathematical equations. Now, what's amazing is, is he did his equations. It predicted that the universe was expanding. He didn't like that necessarily, and so he balanced his equation to get him a past eternal universe again, so that like it would always existed. But in 1929, Edwin Hubble invited Einstein down to the Mount Wilson Observatory and showed him and gave him empirical confirmation that the galaxies were actually receding in every direction, um, kind of like the red shift, right? It's kind of like the Doppler effect in sound, like if there was a siren outside, it's like, you know how sound waves travel towards you and then away from you? Light and the spectrum of light does the exact same thing. So what he discovered was the red shift in terms of that the universe was expanding, and it confirmed his theory. So what that led them to conclude was simply this. Time, space, matter, and energy had a beginning point at the finite point in the past. Time, space, matter, and energy had a beginning point. And so the question is, where does time, space, matter, and energy come from? Okay? Now, imagine we walk in here this morning, and... um, there's a big pot or a kettle of tea or a kettle of hot water boiling, all right? And it's boiling on stage. Now, I get to work with students year-round at Impact 360, so I work with high school students, college students, grad students. So we, we, it's a lot more interactive. But for the sake of time, if I asked you the question, why is this water boiling, eventually you would tell me, well, water boils at a certain temperature, um, you know, at sea level, and you give me a physical explanation of that, right? And that would be correct, okay? That's one kind of answer. But, and that's what's called event causation, a physical event that explains another physical event, okay? But another explanation simply might be this. Why is there a pot of tea boiling? Because someone wanted a cup of tea. An agent, a person, made a choice and wanted something. All of the choices in the universe boil down to two questions. Event causation or agent causation. Now, if you're following along, you know this. Look, if time, space, matter, and energy had a beginning point, then what can you not appeal to to bring time, space, matter, and energy into existence? Time, 
space, matter, and energy. Because those physical, physical events are what you're trying to explain, right? So you have an agent who causes something to um, exist, meaning you, the agent wanted some tea. And that's the better explanation for the origin of the universe, time, space, matter, and energy, right? Now, this is not just something that religious people believe. Um, this is something that, say, for example, Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning, had a beginning. Now, what's fascinating about this is they're saying, look, the modern cosmological picture that you will learn in any standard physics class anywhere you go in university will give you exactly what I just gave you. Time, space, matter, and energy had a beginning point, right? So then the question is, what is the best explanation? Well, event causation is not available to you because time, you can't appeal to time, space, matter, and energy to bring into existence time, space, matter, and energy. So all you're left with is agent causation, which is maybe somebody wanted some tea or somebody wanted a universe. So agent causation. Now, the evidence, and I, we could say so much more about this, but the evidence that I've given you is completely consistent with what you find in the Bible, but it's not dependent upon what you find in the Bible, meaning it doesn't mean that you have to base it on that itself, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what we see is that publicly available evidence, that signpost, if you will, that points beyond itself is consistent with what we see in the Bible, but it's not based on what we see in the Bible. And that's really important. Because in our culture, in our post-Christian culture, where the Bible is the question for many people, not the answer, you're going, yeah, this is what the modern evidence picture of cosmology tells us, and this is what we also would expect and what the Bible predicts we should discover, which is pretty cool. All right, so our first reason is that beginnings require beginners. Our second reason is that design requires designers. Design requires designers, all right? So imagine we're out here walking in the hills, and we come across this. Is there anything particularly special about this? Not a trick question. Nope. <laughs> you know, everybody's like, I don't know. It looks like a rock to me, but I've been caught on that before, you know. You know so it's a rock. You know, time, wind, erosion, it's a rock. But let's say we walk a few hundred feet further, and we see this rock. Is there anything different about that rock? Yeah, what is that rock? It's the Rosetta Stone, right? Had the opportunity to see that at the British Museum this summer. It's pretty awesome. So two different rocks. What is the difference between the two rocks? Writing. And writing contains information. So William Dembski is a philosopher, and he came up with a way for us to detect design. He called it the design inference. And the way that you do that is what's called specified complexity. You see something that's specified and complex, and whenever you have those two things, you've got information, okay? So, so the writing on the Rosetta Stone qualifies for that, right? You have writing, you have, it's specified, and it's complex. See, sometimes people accuse Christians of going, well, look, it's a God of the gaps kind of thing. Wherever you don't know what happened, you just say God did it. That is not what's going on here. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's because of what we do know. It's an argument from evidence, not ignorance, when we talk about this, because of what we know about information and design. 
So let's say, you know, after lunch, we drove out to uh, Monterey Bay. You guys took me out there, and we come across this. And I'm like, that's so cool. Every time, you know, we come out here, and randomly, for no reason whatsoever, the tide comes in, and it goes out, and we're left with this. It's an amazing natural phenomenon that we have here in Southern California, or Northern California, right? And so... There you go. It's like, that didn't happen in Georgia, where I'm from. Like, the lakes, we don't have, you know, magical writing that shows. No, and so what would we say? No, well, somebody wrote a message in the sand. And you have information matching up with a mind that can understand it. Meaning, you've got something written in English that someone who speaks English should be able to recognize a pattern specified in complexity. So if it, if it was just all the letter A's, that would be specified, but not complex, all right? But if you have thank you, that's a message, and information requires a mind. So if that's the case when we look at rocks, hiking in a hill, or the beach, when we think about messages in the sand, is that also true when we look at really big things in creation, in nat the natural world, and really small things in a microscope? And it turns out that's the case. So what I want to do is I want to dive into one particular example of that, which is a protein, all right? Now, I don't know how many cups of coffee you had yet, so don't worry. You don't need to have done all your biology homework or review before this. We'll, we'll build this as we go. But we're going to look at what are the odds of just one functional protein arising by chance, okay? Just by chance. Now, before you get there, you've got to remember that it would take... 250 to 400 proteins to make one minimally complex cell. We're just asking, how do you get one protein? But how many proteins do you need to make a cell? 250 to 400, but we're just trying to make one. And then when you add to that, that one modest protein is 150 amino acids long. So that means that you have a protein and you have 150 places of information, right? where you have amino acids they, that are the different combinations, right? And then you realize that there are 20 possible protein-forming amino acids. So you have 150 places, and each one of those 150 places, you have 20 possible combinations. Do you start to see the problem, or at least the complexity of this? Anybody ever used a bike lock before? Anybody ever lock yourself out of your own bike lock before? I've done that before. I was at the beach and I had to cut that off. I was like, it's just five letters. You'd think I could guess it eventually. No, <laughs> we didn't get there. Um, so that's, you know, back in, you know, in terms of math, comb combinatorial problem or factorials, all that good stuff, right? But it, but it gets more complex because it turns out that there are left-handed and right-handed amino acids and only the left-handed ones work because of the way the proteins fold together. So you see the level of information, the level of specified complexity you need to get one minimally um, functioning protein, okay? So what are the odds of that? Just one. And remember, it takes 250 to 400 proteins to make a cell. The odds of getting even one functional protein of modest length, 150 amino acids by chance, from prebiotic soup is no better than one chance in 10 to the 164th power. That is a massive number, right? There's only 10 to the 80th power elementary particles in the known universe. If you're having trouble trying to conceptualize what that is, just think about our national debt, okay? It's all the zeros, they just keep going. It's like inventing numbers as you go. It's amazing, right? That's a really big number. And so, again, and that's just one functional protein. But 
Can you get replicating life with a protein? No, you need a cell, right? And how many proteins do you need in a cell? 250 to 400. So when you put the odds of that happening by chance, the probability, and this isn't magic, we can calculate this with probability theory, the probability of producing all the necessary proteins needed to service a minimally complex cell is 1 in 10 to the 164th power multiplied by itself 250 times or 1 in 10 to the 41,000th power. That is a ridiculous number. Like it's, to say it's impossible is an understatement, okay? So it is not happening by chance alone. There's not enough probabilistic resources in the universe. Whether, whether, whether you believe the earth is old or young, or, there's, it doesn't matter. There's not enough time. There's not enough zeros. There's not enough seconds of chances at that bike lock to get that to work from random chance. There's just no way, all right? And that's just at a biological level. What about at a cosmic level? Just take one of these, which is the cosmological constant, the third one down. The expansion rate of the universe, if it was slightly more, nothing would form, it would just dissipate. And if it was slightly less, everything would fold back on itself into a black hole. It had to be just right for things to form the way they did, right? And that's just one of 30 fine-tuning parameters that make this a life-permitting universe. So again, just like the message on the sand and the beach and the rock and the Rosetta Stone, information. And our uniform and repeated experience is that information is always the product of intelligence, not randomness. Randomness doesn't get you information. Or to put it differently, just as the information in a book points to an author, Information in DNA points to a mind or author of life. That is a completely and perfectly rational thing to believe based on our evidence and based on our experience. Right? It's not a God of the gaps. It's not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from evidence, and that's really important. So take this question. Can physics, chemistry, and random processes get you information? Or to put it another way, can you get an explosion in a print shop get you the New York Times? Now, that would be an ideological mess like the New York Times usually is, but you would still end up with something intelligible that you can read, right? Because there's no physical law. Let's just say that ink exploded in a print shop. It doesn't arrange itself into alphanumeric letters in a way that's intelligible with ideas expressed through them, right? That takes a mind to do. So there's no physical law that brings about Shakespeare. There's no physical law that brings about, you know, the New York Times in terms of the arrangement of the letters, right? Any more than the letters on the beach, right? So if chance can't do it and physical law doesn't do it, then the only other option you are left with is design and the design inference, and that's perfectly rational. And so even though... Richard Dawkins says this, biology is a study of complex things that appear to have been designed for a purpose. Maybe they appear to be designed for a purpose because they've actually been designed for a purpose, right? And if you're not assuming what you're trying to prove, I think that's an important thing. And in the same way that we talked about the origin of the universe with time, space, matter, and energy, and beginnings require beginners, that evidence is consistent with what we find in the Bible, but not dependent upon what we find in the Bible. In the same way, design is consistent with what we find in the Bible, but it's not dependent upon it. Meaning, 
you can investigate that question independently and make an inference to the best explanation. All right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. Right? Psalm 19. So beginnings require beginners, and design requires designers. Our third reason, our third signpost, is that moral laws require moral lawgivers. Moral laws require moral lawgivers. Now, when I came out here, I noticed, I was thankful, I was driving around, roll up to an intersection, and you guys still have these things, these metallic things with red and white letters on them, like at an intersection, what's the, what are those called out here? Stop signs, yeah, we, we've got them too in Georgia, it's great. Um, and, and so, I was really glad, because it's a mess if you don't have them. But, um, but, here's the thing, why do we stop at a stop sign? Is it because of the metallic composition? Is it because of the paint color? No, we stop because there's an authority behind the sign, right, saying, do not go. Stop. And the same thing happens with moral laws. Like, you should not treat people in a certain way, right? Meaning human trafficking is objectively wrong. Slavery is objectively wrong. Child abuse is objectively wrong. Like, those are moral things because there's there's something above just those activities, right? Now, if we had more time, we would unpack all this, but I want to make sure you see what we're trying to do with this argument. And an argument is not like yelling at each other. An argument is making a case for something. First premise, if there are objective moral values, God must exist, meaning that question is connected, okay? Second, there are objective moral values, meaning there are moral stop signs in our universe, you shouldn't treat another human being this way, right? That's an ought question or a should not question, okay? There are objective moral values. And then the conclusion follows necessarily, therefore, God must exist. Now, there won't be a test later, so don't worry, but this is a deductive argument. What it means is if the premises are true, premise one, premise two, then the conclusion follows necessarily, like intellectual gravity. It doesn't matter if you don't like the conclusion. It doesn't matter... It means that if premise one is true and premise true is true, then three follows necessarily. And I think this is a sound argument. But my atheistic friends will respond to something like this. Well, like, well, look, look, atheists can be good without God, right? They'll say something like this. Tell me some moral behavior that a Christian can do that an atheist can't do. Because atheists will be like, well, look, we can, we can help a little old lady across the street. We can get a cat. Well, actually, we can get a dog out of a tree. Let me make that better. So, not a cat fan, right? And so, but, you know, we can get a, a good dog out of a tree, right? You know, you can do moral actions. And they're like, you don't need God. You don't need to believe in God to do something moral. But that's not the question. And this is what I want to help you understand. The question is not, do you... Can you be good without believing in God? Yes, you can be good without believing in God. Can you read a book without believing in authors of books? Yeah, you can still read the book. Now, can you have a book without an author? Can you have goodness without God? So the question is not, can you act morally without believing in God? The question is, can you actually have goodness without God? 
And that's what's called the grounding objection, all right? And that's a very different question. That's why the, the premise, God and morality are tied closely together, okay? It's vital to understand that. So it's not just you can do moral things, okay? So much more we could say about that, but that's just one thing. Um, for example, evolutionary accounts of morality don't work for this reason. At best, all they do is describe how people have behaved up until this point in human history, but they cannot prescribe how we should or ought to um, act tomorrow. Okay? At best, even if you grant the whole Darwinian evolution paradigm, which I don't, all it does is give you a description of what has happened. It does not give you a prescription of how you ought to act. Those are two very different things. Remember our stop sign illustration. So in the same way we looked at beginnings require beginners and design requires a designer, that we see independent evidence for that and we see it showing up and predicted in the Bible, we see that with morality as well. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousnesses also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. So people know we have a moral standard. The question is, what is the best explanation of those moral stop signs we run into every day, right? That's the idea. So our fourth question then is a historical question. And so um, my friend Mikkel was with you guys, I think, last week, and he talked about how you know that Jesus claimed to be God. And he looked at Mark 2 and Mark 14 and kind of made that case. This builds on it a little bit because if there is a God, has he spoken in history? Well, it turns out there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. That's a historical fact, right? With at least 18 independent sources for the fact that Jesus existed, right, outside of the Bible. Um, and so... But when we, and I'm going to make myself not go into all the things we could talk about on this amazing talk in terms of how do we think about the evidence for the resurrection. But if you evaluate the fate of Jesus of Nazareth as a historian, here are five things you at least have to interact with, okay? You can't just say something happened. That's irrational. You have to go, what happened? What is the best explanation of the historical facts that we see? And the vast majority of historians will grant you the five facts that I'm going to put up on the screen, all right? The first one, Jesus' public execution, right? He lived, he died, and it was public. The Romans were very good at executing people, right? And they did it on purpose for a certain reason. They would crucify their victims along the roads at about eye level so that as everyone walked by, you would have a constant message and a reminder don't mess with Rome. That's why they did that that way. But what also comes from that is you get eyewitnesses. And therefore, there would have been people who would have witnessed the execution and crucifixion of Jesus, as well as what happened to his body and everything else. That's the first fact. The second fact that you have to explain historically is the origin of the disciples' belief. Now, notice what I'm not saying, because this is vital. I'm not saying because the disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead. That's a bad argument. That's a logical fallacy. What I'm saying is, as a historian, you have to explain how it is this, this group of Jesus followers 
came to believe that he was raised from the dead and willing to go to their death for that. You have to explain that historically, right? And that's challenging to do on a naturalistic explanation. Third, Paul. Now, some of you maybe grew up in the church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home or going to vacation Bible school and um, something like that. And so you've maybe been doing coloring pages about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity since you were like two years old. And so when we come to Paul, the temptation is for us to have a very sanitized view of the Apostle Paul. But in reality, the conversion of Paul would be much more like this. It would be much more like the founder of ISIS converting to Christianity and writing most of your New Testament. That's the level of transformation you need. Remember, Paul hated Christians. He wanted them to die. He did not want to see Jesus raised from the dead. He was not grieving. He was not hallucinating, trying to see a loved one that he had lost. None of those explanations work with Paul. And so historically, you have to explain what's a big enough cause to get you the reality of Paul in his conversion. Because he went to his death was beheaded for that belief, and that's something that has to be explained. Fourth, you have James, the brother of Jesus. You know, if we asked you guys, you know, what would it take for you to come to believe that your brother is the Son of God? Pretty high bar. In fact, it's like that couple slides ago, that 10 to the 141,000th number, you know? It's like, I'm not even sure that would do it, right? You're just like, no, there's no way he's the Son of God. But James came to believe that, and he worshipped him. He was one of the leaders in the early church. We have evidence both inside and outside the New Testament documents that James died for that belief in the resurrection from Josephus and the writings of the New Testament. So, again, what happened historically that explains that? You can't just say, well, something happened. That's irrational. You know, what's the, what's the historical cause that produces that effect? That's what historians do. They work in probabilities. All right? And then lastly, the empty tomb. Of all the places that you could have started the, the Christian movement, you could have proclaimed the risen Jesus in India or North Africa or China, oh, far away from where the events actually happened, but where did the proclamation of this event actually happen? Jerusalem, where Jesus was actually crucified. So you could have literally gone, found the body, presented, and said, there's your risen Messiah right there, right? And you would have had to deal with that. So again, you had the empty tomb. You had, you had the Jewish leadership saying the body was stolen, which means we don't know where the body is. Nobody's got the body. They're admitting the empty tomb. And then lastly, a group of Jesus women followers, because in first century Jewish law and society, their testimony was not valued at a high level in terms of legal testimony. That was an embarrassing detail. Yet all four of the earliest biographies of Jesus give you a group of Jesus women followers finding the empty tomb. If you were going to make this thing up, which one of the disciples would you have finding the empty tomb? It'd be Peter, right? He's the rock. Upon him, build the church, right? The whole thing. Nope, he's cowering in the upper room. Jesus' women followers find the tomb. You would not have led with that in the first century unless it actually happened. It's the principle of embarrassment, okay? So those are just some of the pieces of evidence. And again, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to go into more of that. But there's enough historical evidence for you to consider that God may have acted in history in the resurrection of Jesus, and that's important to think about. So we've looked at beginnings, we've looked at design, we've looked at morality, and we've looked at history. The last one that I want to look at with you guys is this, and it's called desire. 
It's a different kind of argument, but have you ever noticed the fact that you get thirsty kind of anticipates and points to the reality that you could satisfy that thirst, right? And that's something unique to human experience. And so Pascal put it this way. We get this idea of a God-shaped vacuum from him. He actually never said those specific words, but this is the passage that's summarized into that. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print or trace, like an afterimage. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with the infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Have you ever tried to hold water in your hands and pour that into your hand? What will eventually happen no matter how hard you try? The water leaks out. Every human experience that we have, every wonderful, amazing experience that we have is fleeting. It's like, oh, if that could just last forever. Just that moment. It's like, can I? That's, honestly, that's why we love pictures so much. We try to capture that moment, but even that doesn't do it. It's an afterimage of that memory that's fading. And there's something there where we go, oh, there's got to be more. Like, there has to be more, because this doesn't satisfy. If we had more time, I would dive into the quote. There's a quote by Tolstoy, um, and he wrote this. He says, look, when you're young, you're intoxicated by life still in the experiences of life because everything's new. So there's a first time for everything, right? There's a first time you see a sunset. There's a first time for that delicious bowl of salsa and chips, right? There's a first time for that dessert or coconut cake or that relationship or what, like you pick any human experience, the first time you do it and you see it and you experience it, it's like, wow. But the more you do it, what happens? It's diminished and there's less. And here's what Tolstoy said as an old man. He said, look, while you're young, you still have the promise to think that while you're intoxicated by life, that there's always something more that's going to bring happiness and satisfaction. And it won't. Not ultimately. And here's the thing. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't really make sense to you until you're over 40, right? After you're 40, you're like, yeah, I get it. And before you're 40, you're like, no, I don't know. No, I don't know. But, so save that one for later. But here's the thing. Like, especially if you're a student, like, my encouragement for you, and you can talk to some of those who are, have more life experience than you in the room, do not try to aim your life at things that are fleeting, even good things that are not ultimate things. Because you will waste your life chasing them, and it will be empty, and they will break your heart. Because those things cannot hold the existential weight that you are going to try to place on them. That relationship, that degree, the amount of money, the pleasure, you pick whatever it is. His point is like, that will not do it. C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Those are good things. 
but they're echoes of ultimate things. And that's why I think there's something in all of us that points and desire, points beyond ourselves to something more. And God, I believe, is the best explanation of that. And in the same way that we looked at other things, the Bible predicts this condition as well. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human life, in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. We know there's something more. We're either making it up or it's real, but we all know there's got to be something more. That's why so many people invent things to live for, even though they know when their head hits the pillow that it's not real, right? I was uh, recently on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling this thing these days, and, um, and I came across a video by Russell Brand in which he talks about this concept. He's not a believer, but with a statement like this, I don't know how far off he might be, because watch how he captures this idea. I'm going to play this video clip, and then we'll talk about it. When it says in the Old Testament, worship no other gods than me, the implication I offer is that we are a species that worships, and if you do not access the divine, you will worship the mandil, you will worship the profane, you will worship your own identity, you will worship your belongings, you will worship the template lane before you by a culture that wants you, no, wants you, but gets you distracted and relatively dumb. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it, right? Because we all will worship something at the end of the day. We're all going to worship something. And you, what I'm hoping is that you don't wait 50 to 80 years before you figure out that you've been worshiping the wrong things. Because if there is a God, and I've given you only five reasons so far, and there's many more, that God exists and is real, God created you to know him and have life in him. And I don't know where you're at on that question. Personally, if you've been following God for a lifetime or in following Jesus for a lifetime, or if you're considering, or if you're like, you know what, I don't know what I think about this. But here's the reality, and this is the good news, is that God does not remain an abstract object or some sort of immaterial force. Either God exists or he doesn't, but not both. He doesn't magically exist for the theist and magically not exist for the atheist. And if God actually exists, that means there is a design for things, right? Your life has value. Sexuality, morality, emotional, relational is God's good design. And we either cooperate with that and flourish, or we break ourselves against it and pain and consequences and disillusionment, but not both. Either there is meaning to life that you can discover. You were made for more than just the satisfaction of your own desires, or not, but not both. So the one thing this question cannot be is inconsequential. If God exists, that literally changes how you should live your life. And if God does not exist, then that should change the way you live your life. I'm deeply convinced for personal reasons and rational reasons that God is real and that God has spoken uniquely in Jesus Christ. And the gospel, the good news of that, is that he created you to know him, 
that that separation can be bridged by Jesus' death on the cross and being raised from the dead in history for us, for our sin, and for our salvation. And that all we have to do is put our trust in Him alone. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is the difference between Jesus plus or Jesus alone. Right? Jesus alone satisfies that and makes that relationship possible. So if you've never considered that in more than kind of a Sunday school, I guess Christians are supposed to believe that kind of way, I hope that I've given you at least enough to consider to think about why you might want to explore that question that God is in fact real. Because I can tell you from personal experience, not only have I studied this and thought a lot about it, but I've also experienced God and His faithfulness and goodness and forgiveness. And only in Christianity do you have both the rational and the experiential and personal come together in that powerful way. And I think it's pretty awesome. Now, I've written a lot about this, more than I'd have time to talk about. My co-author and I, Sean McDowell, wrote the book, Is God Just a Human Invention? And 17 Other Questions Raised by New Atheists. Um, we go into all sorts of detail on, on a lot of these arguments and other ones I didn't even mention that we talked about this morning. My website, jonathanmorrow.org, has resources as well as the ministry I get to work with where we train high school and college students in worldview and discipleship and apologetics at impact360.org. I hope you'll check that out. But lastly, and most importantly, is this. This question matters, and it's not inconsequential. So take some time to think about it. Because God made us to seek Him, and in seeking Him, to find Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You that You have given us hope and truth. Thank You that You have given us signposts of beginnings, of design, of morality, of history, and desire. Lord, You are the best explanation of those things, the facts that we see. It's not an argument from ignorance, it's an argument from evidence. Lord, but you are not going to make us believe. So Lord, I pray that we would have tender hearts towards you, that whoever's here or watching this online would consider this question afresh and anew in a way that they seek you and in seeking you that they might find you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. It's been great to be with you.